Good morning. Take your, your bulletins or your Bibles and let's read from Luke chapter 14 together. Luke 14, beginning at verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned, and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, well, then he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and he is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, if any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. So Lord bless us as we look at his word this morning. Do the things that Jesus said ever sound strange to you? I think anybody who reads the Gospels, at some point along the way, they're going to stumble on something and they're going to say, well, what am I supposed to do with that? Sometimes the things Jesus says seem strange because he lived in a very different world than we do. For example, in a a couple chapters before this passage, he says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And of course, the people in his day would have responded, well, of course they are, duh, yeah. Whereas we read that and we answer, well, I guess. I mean, if you say so, I haven't seen sparrows at the farmer's market lately. But then other times, so sometimes it's because he lived in a different world than we do. Other times, the strangeness is just plain timeless. It doesn't matter who you are, when you lived, or where you lived. That's just a strange thing to say. Well, here in our passage today, we have not, not one of those, but both of those. We get one of each today. And so we'll start with the timeless saying, the thing that is so strange that uh, it doesn't matter who you are or when you lived or where you lived. This is a pretty strange thing to say. It's in verse 26. Look at verse 26. In verse 26, Jesus says, Unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciple. Now, I don't care where you live. At any point in human history, that's just a strange thing to say. I mean, especially since Jesus was such a nice, loving guy, right? I mean, at least that's the, the general reputation he has in our culture. I mean, it's hard to imagine that someone as, as nice as Jesus would tell his disciples to hate anyone, right? Let alone their own families. So what is he getting at here? The answer to what he's getting at is not found, actually, in the words he says. It's found in two types, two ways of hearing those words. There's two ways to hear what Jesus says when he says you have to hate your family. So first, here's one way of hearing it. First, imagine if you went to hear someone speak who was running for mayor of the city of Boise, and they said something along these lines. Vote for me, and you'll lose everything. Your families, your homes, your jobs, your money, that's my plan for our city. Got to get rid of everything. Now, who's with me? 
I mean, how do you think the crowd would respond to that? I'm imagining crickets. I mean, no one would eat. I don't even think people would heckle him or throw rotten tomatoes because they'd be too bewildered. I mean, this guy is loony. Why would somebody even say that? He's not going to get any votes at all on that platform. But that's kind of basically what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, listen, we're doing something big, and you should do it with me. Only you'd, be better, be, you'd better be prepared to lose everything. And if you don't hate everything, then you're gonna, you can't be my disciple. Sorry. Did Jesus really think that after a speech like that, that anyone was going to sign up to be his disciple? But see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The way you receive those words depend entirely upon who is saying them. I mean, it's a very different thing to have somebody who's running for mayor asking for a favor, saying, hey, would you give me your vote? Versus this. Here's the second way of hearing it. Imagine if instead of someone running for mayor, you heard those very words from the captain of a boat in the middle of a, a terrifying storm. Imagine if he said something like this. If you're going to live through this, you need to lose some stuff. Put down your bags, empty your pockets, and get ready to swim. If you have anything on you that's weighing you down, you will never survive what comes next. That's a very different way of hearing basically the same message. I mean, if you were in a situation like, what, like that, if you were on that boat, what would you do if the captain said that? These are not the words of someone asking for a favor. This is someone telling you what you need to do to survive. Do you want to live through this? Here's what you need to do. If he says, empty your pockets and jump into the water and start swimming, then that's exactly what you would do. I mean, the situation that we're in changes how we hear these words. And that's the contrast that Jesus was presenting to his hearers. He's challenging them. He's challenging them. He's asking them, what situation do you think you're in? Do you hear Jesus basically thinking that you're basically in a good, safe, generally positive place? Do you think Jesus has come to you asking for a favor? Asking you to vote for Jesus? Do you want him to provide... Uh, maybe just a little wisdom and encouragement to boost you up to make your life just that much better than it already is? Is that how you come to Jesus? Is that how you hear what he says? Or do you hear Jesus knowing that your very life is on the line? And if he doesn't guide you out of the storm, then you're never going to make it. That's the contrast. I think what we believe about our own situation changes everything. Far too often we think that we're doing like maybe... 80%, 90% good, right? Hey, we're doing pretty well. If only we had that little bit that we needed to complete us, to round things out, then we would be content and happy. That seems to be often how we think. We think our lives are like a puzzle, and there's maybe just two or three pieces missing, you know? So we try, to, we try different things into the holes to see if these different little things maybe will, will plug up the hole in our puzzle and maybe, maybe fill it out to see if maybe this works or maybe that works. Maybe a new career, a new city, a new friend, a new spouse. Maybe that's the missing piece. Maybe my kids. Maybe, uh, maybe some time off. Maybe a little fun would round things out. And then the puzzle will be finished and I'll feel content and happy. But that's completely the wrong way to look at our lives. It's a completely backward way to look. The Bible says we're not 80 to 90% complete. The Bible says that on our own, 
apart from the intervention of God, we're spiritually dead and physically dying. Dead means 0%. That's where we start at. Not 80 or 90%. No one can boast about their lives because if we have any life at all, it's a gift from God. So while we've been trying to plug a few pieces in to maybe finish this puzzle, the table's caught fire. That's what's happening. And unless something is done about it soon, the puzzle doesn't matter a lot. It's not going to matter very much in a few minutes. We don't listen to Jesus because we don't listen to Jesus because we don't think we're in trouble. When we, but when you hear the captain of the boat saying, "Empty your pockets and get ready to swim," that should get our attention. Is Jesus saying in this verse that we're supposed to abandon our families, hate your mother, hate your father, brother, sister? No, he's not saying we should abandon our families. But what he is saying is that when the moment is urgent, everything else must be secondary to the one true most important thing. Or in other words, if you ever find yourself having to decide between following Jesus and clinging to the rest of your life, remember this. Only Jesus can guide you to safety. Let's look at the other strange thing that Jesus says in this story. That one was the obvious one. You can't read this this passage and not notice that, wow, Jesus said some wild stuff here. This one is more subtle. It doesn't jump out as much because we live in such a different world now. But it's in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think it's unexpected that familiarity with crosses makes this harder to understand. But that's exactly the case. We're very familiar with crosses. We see crosses all the time. They become a part of our culture. You don't have to be a Christian to wear a cross in our culture. They're just kind of everywhere. When we see crosses, we think of Jesus. But let me tell you, that is not what these hearers thought of when they thought of crosses. Because after all, he said this before he had ever died on a cross. Before he had ever taken this symbol upon himself and stamped his identity onto it. When Jesus told these people to each bear their own cross, it didn't sound like the good news of salvation to their ears. It sounded like the opposite of that. The cross, this is what it symbolized. It was a cruel means of execution imposed upon them by a hated enemy. It was the ultimate symbol of absolute oppression and evil. And Jesus is saying, take up a cross. At that time, Jewish culture was centered around opposition to Roman occupation. Whatever they are, we're not. Whatever they demand, don't give it to them. Whatever they require, resist it. As much as you're able, resist it. That's what it meant to be a good and faithful citizen. And when Jesus tells them to take up their cross, the very symbol of Rome, that would make their blood boil. You want us to do what? It would bring to mind images of lost battles, Echoing in their ears would be their enemies mocking them. It would put right in front of their face a national injustice that seemed like it would never end. 
Here, Jesus is saying that being his disciple is more important than our national and cultural identity. Whatever aspects of our culture we are most passionate about, whether it's politics, education, technology, health, recreation, entertainment, the sports, arts, any of it, all of those things, Jesus is stamping, he's saying all of those things are secondary to me, to following me. Or to put it another way, if following Jesus means dying at the hands of the Romans on a cross, Jesus is telling them it's better to die on a cross and follow me than it is to not follow me and not die on a cross. And remember, don't, don't forget, this is, he said all this before they knew that that's exactly where Jesus himself was heading. How shocking it must have sounded. It would be like Jesus saying, coming in here right now today and saying, if you have to choose between following me and being a good American, remember this. Nations and empires rise and fall, but my kingdom will stand forever. That's the second strange thing. I mean, I, see, it's hard, we can read right past that, bear a cross, because we're just, that's language we're familiar with. But in that day, both of these would have just been, there would have been gasps in the crowd. In verses 28 to 33, Jesus tells two stories. First story, there was once a person who decided to build a tower, and he started to build, but then after building only the foundation, the very first phase of the project, he had to quit because he ran out of money. And then everybody laughed at him because he started building without figuring out how much it costed. There you go. That's the story. And what's the punchline? The punchline of the story is, you don't want to be like that, do you? That's what he's putting this story in front of him and saying, you don't want to be like that. Here's a second story. The second story is of a king who was at war, and a great battle was about to take place. And unlike the builder in the previous story, the king took a minute and counted the cost. Could his 10,000 men defeat in some way, tactically? Is there, is there a way that they could defeat the other army of 20,000 men? He decided that victory was unlikely, and so he did everything he could to achieve peace without fighting a battle. The punchline of this story is you want to be like that, don't you? Few of us have built towers and even fewer of us have served as heads of state. But we all have experience counting the cost. I mean, have you ever daydreamed back through your life about what would, what, what would your life be like right now if I'd done all those things differently? I mean, do you, any, any one of us can almost instantaneously think of a dozen major decisions that, where we say, if I had done this instead of that, how different would my life be? And some of them are really positive and pleasant things to think about, and some of them are really negative and unpleasant. But any one of us could, could come up with something like that. We've all wondered about that. What if I'd chosen differently? Now, you can't walk too far in life without having to make some pretty major decisions. We've all had to count the cost in some way probably done better at it at some times than we have at others. But what cost is Jesus talking about here? What cost is he telling you to count? He says in verse 33 that he's talking about the cost of being his disciple. If you're going to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you something. 
And some of you are thinking, wait, this has a cost? Well, then count me out. I thought I could just come on Sunday and check a few boxes and, and feel like I'm doing the right thing, good moral life, etc. If this has a cost, I'm out, especially if it's the kind of cost he's talking about here. That's pretty steep. But listen, here's the truth. You want the truth? Here's truth. Everything has a cost. Everything costs you something. Everything from our vocation to our recreation to our reputation has a cost. And the cost is always more than just money. Working 75 hours a week might be good for your career, but what does it cost? Spending a summer getting out into the beautiful Idaho outdoors is fun and restful, but what does it cost? Becoming a Pinterest guru might earn you honor and glory, but what does it cost? We work so hard to prove to others that we're smart, that we're beautiful, and that we're good. But what does it cost? Everything costs something. Instead of asking, why should following Jesus cost me something? We should be asking, why am I willing to spend my life on all these other things, but not on Jesus? That's a better question. We're all born with skewed values. The choices that we make reveal what we truly value. If you would rather give yourself to something else, then how much do you really value Jesus? That's what this text is asking you. If you'd rather give yourself to something else, then how much do you really value Jesus? It's a hard question. It's a hard one to face honestly. What are the things that you value more than Jesus. And then what are we supposed to do about it? How do, how, how do I respond to this text? Jesus' call saying, follow me. It's going to cost you something, but it's worth it. Well, first of all, I think we need to recognize Jesus for who he truly is. Jesus is not a wise person from a long line of wise people. Jesus is not teaching us a technique for ironing out the kinks in our lives. Jesus is not a missing puzzle piece that helps us complete our lives. There's way more to him than that. We believe that Jesus is the most important person in history because of who he is and because of what he did. Jesus is the son of God and he became man to intervene in human history and save us from ourselves. We've been valuing the wrong things since the beginning of time. Jesus came to tell us to put down our bags, empty our pockets, and follow him. If we value anything else higher than him, we'll lose that anyway. But if we value him and his kingdom and his righteousness before anything else, then everything else will be added to us. As Jesus said, once said, whoever tries to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I mean, I get it that that sounds kind of backward, but Jesus was known, known for saying strange things, right? 
That's where we started. Here's the deal. He proved what he proved that what he said was true through his death, resurrection, and ascension. So here it is. Here's this passage right here. According to Jesus, even if following him costs you everything, that's a good trade. Do you believe that? Sometimes it's pretty hard to believe that. Even for someone who's been a Christian for years, it can be really hard to believe that sometimes. One struggling follower told Jesus right to his face. He said this right to his face. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Jesus helped his unbelief. And he will help yours too. Let's that be our prayer together this morning. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We are weak. If we're honest, we know that we are weak and we have valued the wrong things. Be in us, work your strength in us, your power in us, change us so that we begin to love what you love. Give us a wisdom that we don't have already. Give us the wisdom that only comes from you. Teach us what we need to know and make us what we need to be. Amen.